This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. The Supreme Court of Canada has upheld a federal law that would stop companies from forcing people to undergo genetic testing before buying insurance. Genetic testing is used to determine a patient's risk of developing cancer or hereditary diseases. The Genetic Non-Discrimination Act was created to ensure that Canadians can take genetic tests to help identify health risks without being penalized when seeking life or health insurance. It also protects that genetic information from employers. As the broad availability of genetic testing has mushroomed over the past two decades, privacy and potential discrimination concerns associated with testing results has increased. Until recently, Canada lagged behind other countries in this regard, with no specific national legislation. That changed in 2017, with the enactment of the Genetic Non-Discrimination Act. The act was quickly challenged on constitutional grounds, but earlier this month, a divided Supreme Court of Canada upheld its validity. Senator James Cowan was the lead proponent of the legislation, introducing it as a private member's bill in the Senate back in 2013. The bill underwent a remarkable parliamentary journey, featuring opposition from successive governments, lobbying against the bill by the insurance industry, passage in the House of Commons despite objections from then-Justice Minister Jody Wilson-Raybould, and a court challenge in which the government supported the effort to declare the law invalid. Senator Cowan retired from the Senate in 2017, just months before the law was passed in the House of Commons. He joins me on the podcast to discuss what prompted him to take on the genetic privacy issue and the unlikely path of Canada's genetic non-discrimination law. Senator Cowan, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure. You've got, I think, a really remarkable story to tell. Uh, As you know, back in 2003, scientists completed the mapping of the entire human genome. And about 10 years later, you found yourself in the Senate and became the most vocal and visible proponent of genetic privacy in Canada. Why don't we start by, by telling me a bit about what led you to take on the issue? Well, I'm a lawyer by, by trade and a, a politician by choice, I guess. And, and I was looking when I was in the Senate for something that was a nonpartisan issue because at the time I was the leader of the opposition in the Senate, which tended to be a pretty partisan kind of role. And I was looking for something outside of that that would be nonpartisan, that would kind of be the law, health policy, and that sort of thing. And I had a lot of experience over the years in health policy uh, matters. And so this my my uh, Barbara Kedgen, who's my research advisor, came to me one day and said that she had uh, a close friend who had uh, taken a genetic test and had tested positive for the BRCA gene, which indicates that she was at a higher risk of developing breast cancer than the ordinary woman. And uh, she didn't have breast cancer, but carried this gene, which is uh, known as Angelina Jolie's uh, gene. And... Uh, she was, uh, but she was denied insurance coverage, not because she had breast cancer, but because she carried this gene. And uh, Barbara said, this seems very odd. Surely that's, that shouldn't be. And I agreed and I, we looked into it and found that there, in Canada, unlike many other countries around the world, there was absolutely no protection for your uh, genetic information. And uh, you mentioned back in 2003 that um, when the genome was first sequenced, there were some hundred, you know, maybe 200 
genetic tests uh, available worldwide for a variety of, of conditions. And uh, when we began to work on this issue uh, 10 years later, there were less than 2,000 uh, tests available uh, across, across the spectrum. And uh, just by, to give you an example of how quickly it's expanded, when the bill passed in 2017, there were 36,000 uh, uh, tests available. And when I checked the other day, there were 76,000 uh, tests available. So it's just exploding the whole area of genetic testing. So we took this on and, and talked about what we could do about it. Um, and we talked about, you know, perhaps launching an inquiry in the Senate or doing something like that. And then uh, we said, well, well, why don't we actually try to put together what we think would be appropriate legislation to protect uh, genetic information? And uh, that led to the introduction of a bill in 2013, a private member's bill called the Genetic uh, Non-Discrimination Act. Um, and um, so we, we, that's the way we started. And we consulted, obviously, with, with legal experts, with health experts, health researchers, geneticists. Um, and uh, we also spoke to the insurance industry because they seemed to be front and center in this. And, of course, they said there wasn't a problem. And in any event, they weren't interested in discussing with us uh, how we might uh, proceed. So we uh, then produced the first version of our Genetic Non-Discrimination Act uh, in, the, uh, in the Senate. It was, um, it, I got it to, to our committee and the government of the day, the Harper government, uh, the justice lawyers said, no, no, we, this is not something that is appropriate for federal legislation. And it simply stalled, and we didn't we didn't get anywhere. Uh, and we then, uh, a year or so later, after the bill was simply stalled in committee in the Senate, uh, there was a prorogation, and we came back and we introduced a second version of the bill, and uh, that got some hearings, but again was still opposed um, by the government. And uh, then the 2015 election was called while the bill was still on the order paper. So uh, we had to start a third time uh, after the 2015 election. Okay, so uh, quite a legislative journey, even in the Senate. Can you describe a little bit what the bill was intended to do? What was what were the, some of the key elements in the bill, and how did it evolve during these the, these attempts, these different attempts to bring it forward? Well, the, the the there were several elements in the bill. There was an amendment to the to the Human Rights Act. Uh, to add genetic characteristics as a prohibited ground of, of, uh, of um, um, discrimination. Uh, and uh, then we uh, had an amendment to the Canada Labor Code. Uh, and the, But the real sort of guts of the bill was uh, a new legislative regime which would use the federal criminal law power to prohibit uh, discrimination on the basis of uh, genetic testing results. And we, we restricted the application of the bill to uh, contracts uh, and to the provision of services. And the bill said that, it, that anybody who was entering into a contract with another person uh, couldn't either require that person to take a genetic test or to disclose the results of a genetic test as a precondition to entering into the contract. And then we, as we, we, and so that was the sort of original bill. As we proceeded further along, we found that 
we needed to buttress it a bit and, and beef it up a bit by putting in provisions that prohibited not only the, the, the requiring or asking for this information uh, as a precondition, but also saying that if, you, if this information came into your hands, you couldn't use it without the consent of, of the individual. And so the whole premise is that nothing is more private than your genetic makeup, which is unique. Everybody's genetic uh, makeup is different from anybody, everybody else's, and that this is nothing more private, more, more personal than that, and that it shouldn't be used uh, by anybody without your consent. And uh, so that's, that's what the bill does. And then that's as it, we made some changes. We, uh, we consulted with the Privacy Commissioner, we consulted with the Human Rights Commission, and they suggested some changes, uh, and, which we made as we, as we went along. Uh, the insurance industry maintained its opposition to the very end and lobbied very hard uh, against this on the grounds that they felt that this was directed towards insurance contracts, which it isn't and wasn't. Uh, and that it was an interference or an intrusion into provincial jurisdiction over property and civil rights. And we maintained that it was a proper use of the federal criminal law power. And uh, I'm not a constitutional lawyer, but I did consult with uh, uh, experts in the area, not only in, in Parliament, but uh, people like Bruce Ryder and, my, and uh, Peter Hogg. And uh, they were confident that the bill, as we drafted it, uh, met the constitutional tests, and uh, ultimately the Supreme Court of Canada agreed with us narrowly, but a victory is a victory is a victory. Absolutely. We'll come back to the Supreme Court of Canada decision yep. in just a few minutes. Uh, you know, you started this out at a time when the issue was not particularly well known, and you mentioned that you didn't have the government on side. How did the Senate, your, your fellow senators' thinking evolve over the years when it came to the issue? Well, I think that it's an interesting, it's an interesting study, Michael, in how you know how how politicians uh, get their information and how they're influenced. And I, you know, I've been there. I've seen that. Uh, I've been on the receiving end of submissions of various kinds. And now, in this case, I was I was advocating for a position. And uh, what was really, I think, was really most impactful was the individual, the stories of, by individual Canadians. Now, this would be, um, you know, folks like uh, there were a number of geneticists and genetic researchers at, say, for, as an example, at Sick Kids in Toronto. Uh, we had uh, geneticists uh, across the country who were saying how, uh, how the lack of protection impacted on their clinical practices. And then we had individuals who had been affected. I mentioned Barbara Kajan, my research director, and her friend who carried the BRCA gene. And as we began to talk about it, uh, more and more people became aware of the situation. And I, I, I think almost every time that I did an interview or I, I spoke about it or just in casual sort of social conversation, people would say, well, let me tell you about my, my situation this is what happened to me, or this is what happened to my mother or my brother or something. And those kinds of stories then filtered back to senators and MPs. And I think that's what really, uh, it grabbed the attention uh, of, of, of those politicians. They saw that it was a, a real issue which affected real people. 
And I think that's 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 a key to what happened. Yeah, that's interesting that it's the personal stories that had that kind yeah. of impact. You you mentioned that there were several attempts at this bill as without government support, uh, but the with the election in 2015, a change in government, did that change the attitude towards the bill? And then how did it ultimately pass through the Senate? Well, it was it was interesting because uh, before you know during the during the Harper uh, government, uh, the Justice Department, as I said, was opposed to it, and the government was opposed to it, and wasn't the government had a majority in the Senate as well as the House, so we weren't we couldn't get it past committee. Uh, and then uh, the election came, and uh, as part of our our efforts, we we had contacted all of the parties to talk about this issue. And uh, the Conservatives remained sort of non-committal about it. The New Democrats were supportive. Uh, the Greens were supportive. And uh, the Liberals uh, had promised in the 2011 election campaign that this would be a priority. They would introduce legislation to, uh, to fix this problem. They didn't do anything, because, I guess, because they didn't form government. But then in the 2015 election, there was a, there was a forum in Toronto organized by CJA, the Jewish Advocacy Group, and uh, Bill Morneau, now the finance minister, uh, represented the Liberals there, and he promised that if a Liberal government, if elected, would introduce legislation to uh, prohibit discrimination uh, on the basis of genetic testing. So we were hopeful about that, and then we also got a letter from the president of the Liberal Party, uh, which reaffirmed that position. So I was, uh, when the election results came in and uh, a liberal government had been formed, a majority liberal government, I thought, well, you know, where this should be pretty, pretty easy. And uh, pretty quickly, we found out that the, the government uh, was taking the same position that the previous government was, presumably with the same advice of the same lawyers. So I met with uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould, who was the Minister of Justice, and, uh, and she said, well, there were policy reasons why this wasn't a good thing, and they thought, felt it was unconstitutional. And I said, well, look, I'm not a constitutional lawyer. You're not either. Why don't we put our experts together and see if they can come up with something? She wasn't interested in, in, uh, in doing that at all. And she remained opposed to the bill. Uh, and uh, as it, uh, and at that point, it was still in, in the Senate. Ultimately, we got it passed by the Senate unanimously. Uh, and it went to the House and it went to the Justice Committee. Uh, and um, Anthony Housefather, who is the chair of the committee, was very anxious to deal with it, and he was a supporter of the bill, but uh, we talked about it, and so I said, well, look, I think the main issue here is not, not the issues about whether genetic testing is good or whether discrimination is bad, but whether or not this is the right way to deal with it, and the ministers raised some constitutional issues, and uh, perhaps we should focus on that. So we called a number of constitutional experts who testified that this was a proper use of the federal criminal law power. And they invited the minister to appear and her officials to appear. And uh, she did neither, but she did send a statement saying that um, they, their view was that this was an intrusion in, into uh, provincial jurisdiction. So um, the committee examined it and concluded that based on the evidence they had, that it was a proper from a constitutional point of view and send it back to the House. And then the government introduced some amendments to uh, really gut the bill. And uh, that's, we were a little bit 
worried at that point uh, because the, the cabinet lined up in support of uh, all the amendments. Uh, but then to sit there and watch the amendments fall one, one after one, uh, not only because the opposition uh, voted against them, but a majority of the liberal backbenchers stood and, uh, and voted them down. And then, uh, then they voted to pass the bill as it had been uh, submitted. So it was, a, it was an interesting time to sit in the gallery of the House and watch that happen. I, I've got to unpack some of what you just said because I think this is this is quite remarkable. Starting first with you know the, the Liberals indicating during the election campaign this is something they'd support, seemingly having a change of heart or a change of view once it came to once once they took power. The Senate turns around and passes this unanimously, but once it gets to the House, you've got a Justice Minister, and I, I understand that the entire cabinet. Uh, who is now opposed to this legislation, and yet the Justice Minister won't even appear before the Justice Committee to talk about a bill that had been passed by the Senate? Yeah. yeah. It's, it, it, it's, 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 I think it was extraordinary. I thought it was extraordinary at the time, and I think uh, in hindsight is even more extraordinary. It is. It's a little bit hard. It, it, you know, it's, I, I think it's, it's quite remarkable to hear that. The, the the government basically opposed not opposing a bill is, is one thing opposing a bill when you stood for those same principles before the election i think is another but then to oppose it that a bill that had been passed by the senate and simply refused to even come to the committee studying it um is highly problematic and then of course the opposition that uh, that you talk about once there were all these amendments designed to to gut the legislation you have a sense of where this opposition was coming from do you think it really was primarily grounded in these constitutional issues do you think some of the lobbying that you've already talked about that came primarily from the insurance company companies was having an impact where do you think this was coming from well um i, I think that I obviously haven't talked to Ms. Wilson-Raybould since then, but uh, she was saying at that time that the provinces were opposed to it. Well, I was—I uh, had written to all of the provinces when the bill was was before the Senate. I think on two. I think I wrote to all the provinces, and then the Senate Human Rights Committee wrote to all the provinces, saying, "Look, we have this bill. Uh, we'd appreciate your views." And uh, I don't have the information in front of me now, but there was. There was no concern. Nobody, no, no province came forward and said we're opposed to it. Uh, several provinces said they supported it, uh, but but weren't really going to get involved in it because it was a federal issue. And uh, several other provinces said, "Look, thank you for this. Uh, we're we'll keep a close eye on it, and uh, um, you know, thank you for for letting us know it's there." But nobody came out in 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 opposition to the bill, and. Uh, when she, she and I spoke, I think, on two occasions about this, and I've described one of those interactions, and another, I said, well, which provinces? And she said, well, I can't tell you that, which was not very helpful. And I know from, because I knew several attorneys general personally, uh, I know that she was lobbying them uh, to oppose the bill, and um, nobody really wanted to, to, to get involved. She did say to caucus, and while I'd been a member of the Liberal Caucus up until 2014, at that point, you may recall, uh, Mr. Trudeau separated the senators from the National Liberal Caucus. So I wasn't in caucus after that. But at the time that the bill was being discussed in National Caucus, uh, Ms. Wilson-Raybould said that uh, if the bill passed, 
she would refer it to the Supreme Court of Canada on a reference. Um, when the bill did pass, uh, she didn't do that. But what she did do was then try to get the provinces to uh, to do so and ultimately, not surprisingly, persuaded Quebec to make a reference to the uh, Court of Appeal in Quebec, which is their which is their right. And then the government of Canada intervened again in a bizarre way, uh, unusual way, uh, in support of that reference, sort of, here's the government of Canada arguing before the Quebec Court of Appeal, as it subsequently did before the Supreme Court of Canada, that a bill passed uh, by Parliament was ultra-virage Parliament, which is, I don't think has ever happened before in my, as I've been able to find it. So that was a very unusual position uh, to take, and and uh, but that's what she did. That's what the government did. Right. So let's we'll come to the, the the history in the courts in just a sec, just to kind of close the loop on what was taking place in the House of Commons. I just want to make sure it's clear that, in fact, the, while there was opposition from obviously the justice minister, and you mentioned the cabinet itself, liberal backbench MPs were free to vote their conscience were free to vote in whatever manner they they so chose, and therefore the legislation passed with support from virtually all MPs other than the cabinet? Yes, that's correct. I think there were one or two uh, who, uh, who, who who voted uh, with, with cabinet. Uh, some of the parliamentary secretaries voted with the cabinet. Some of the cabinet members simply weren't there for whatever reason, but those who were there, uh, including the prime minister, all voted uh, against the bill in support of of Ms. Wilson-Raybould's position. Gaining the support of the entire Senate and the majority of the House uh, is, no easy, is no easy task. Can you talk a bit about the kind of support that you had from across the country uh, on this issue? I was privileged to kind of be the lead on this, but um, we had tremendous, we had, there was a, the coalition for, uh, Canadian Coalition for Genetic Fairness, which was a coalition led by the Huntington Society but uh, a coalition of health charities across the country, and they brought together enormous resources, enormous contact lists, which they and they reached out to their people and got their people to contact the local MP or senators that they knew. Um, CJA, the Jewish Advocacy Group, was very effective in in helping us because there are uh, some genetic uh, um, disorders, if I can use that term. Uh, which are peculiar to some uh, of uh, some Jewish uh, people. And so they are particularly interested in this issue of genetic privacy. And so they were very effective in reaching out to MPs and senators um, in support of the bill. So this, was, this wasn't just me and, and Rob Oliphant in the House of Commons. We were supported by a huge uh, um, coalition of, 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 of people and organizations across the country. So, uh, so, so actually, so that, so that that's, it's, it's good to know. It's important to hear how there was that broad support and groups working in favor of the legislation. Before we get to the, the, the what took place within the courts, can you speak a bit about the opposition at the same time? So you mentioned the insurance companies. Were there other opponents? What were the insurance companies arguing, and what was the, what was the well, response in return? The insurance companies uh, were arguing, uh, the life, this is a life insurance industry, they were arguing that this was unconstitutional because it was really aimed at insurance contracts, and insurance con- insurance industry is governed, uh, is regulated at the provincial level. Uh, 
Um, they were very much afraid of their, so they said, and their evidence was that if they were not, that an insurance contract obviously is, is based upon uh, the insurer having available to it all information necessary to assess risk because it is a contract. And obviously you need to have, have that. And that's a accepted principle of contract law. But what we were saying was, look, there's a, we, we draw a distinction between one's medical history, which you have access to. So when you apply for insurance, they're entitled to, to ask you questions about your medical history, whether you, or your surgical background, your, what medications you're taking, what conditions you have. They can delve into the, your family history to see what your parents and your siblings uh, died of if they if they uh, if they if they predeceased you that kind of information and that and so we draw a distinction which they didn't accept between that kind of factual information historical information uh, and and hypothetical information a genetic test while it can be used to diagnose conditions also is useful in indicating a predisposition to the development of particular conditions. If you, for instance, if you carry the, the, um, the BRCA gene, a woman carries the, the BRCA gene, that indicates that she is at a higher risk than other women of developing breast cancer. It doesn't mean that she has breast cancer, but if she knows that she carries that gene, then there are things that she can do to change her lifestyle, watch her diet, get annual tests, uh, even to the extreme that Angelina Jolie did and have a double mastectomy to prevent the onset of breast cancer, that this, th this information is, is useful in, in managing your, your own health, one's own health. And so we draw a distinction between that sort of, that, that, that genetic testing, which indicates a predisposition to develop a condition from the fact of an actual diagnosis of cancer or, or heart disease or hypertension or something like that. Now, there are some conditions that are more sure. If you, have, if you carry the Huntington's gene, as an example, then the risk, if you live long enough, then you will develop Huntington's disease. But it's not, it, that might, you might never develop that during your working lifetime. And you might die of some other cause before you actually developed. So it's we draw a distinction which the insurance companies would not accept between medical history, which they always have been entitled to access in order to assess risk, and genetic test results, which are not diagnostic but indicate potential. So that was the, and they indicated that if they didn't have access to this, then it would mean that 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 you know people would go and uh, you'd get a genetic test you find you had a predisposition to develop a particular condition so you'd rush out and buy a whole lot of insurance then you'd develop the condition you'd die and the insurance company would have to pay out and that would mean that everybody's premiums would rise and they were saying that premiums would rise perhaps as much as 50% for all Canadians if this bill were to pass we did research as to in other countries, the UK, France, Israel, other places where there is protection for genetic information. And there was no indication that that phenomenon took place. 
and we understand now that this bill has been in 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 been the law in Canada since 2017, and there's no indication that rates in Canada have have increased uh, as a result of this uh, the insurance companies being unable to access this information. Nor is there any indication that insurance companies have suffered in any way as a result of this. So uh, it it was a bit of I think crying wolf, uh, but that that was the basis of their of, of their objection. Jody Wilson Rebold, then the Justice Minister, sought out support from provinces to oppose. The province of Quebec did. What took place uh, in the courts in Quebec? Well, we had a hearing before the Quebec Court of Appeal in December 2018, and the court very quickly came back and uh, with a five nothing, uh, five zero uh, decision ruling uh, in favor of the uh, uh, or against the bill, saying that it was an intrusion into provincial jurisdiction. So the coalition for Canadian Canadian Coalition for Genetic Fairness that I mentioned uh, appealed to the Supreme Court of Canada. And that appeal was heard uh, in the Supreme Court of Canada uh, last October in the middle of the election campaign. Okay. So the case goes to the Supreme Court of Canada. And earlier this month, it releases its decision, a, a 5-4 decision, as you mentioned. It's close, but uh, close is good enough when it comes to a win. The majority was comprised of two separate opinions, the three judges and then another two, with four uh, voting to to uphold the Quebec decision to, against the legislation. Um, can you highlight the the key aspects of the decision and how it broke down at the Supreme Court? Well, the the, the five judges. Um, there were some differences of approach that you, as you mentioned, but they were agreed. The majority were agreed that this was a valid exercise of um, the federal criminal law power, and uh, that criminal law power, the case law establishes that in order to come within that power, you have to have you have to have a prohibition, a general prohibition. There has to be a penalty attached to it. And there has to be um, there has to be a, a harm, which is uh, which is to be dealt with. And uh, they, there was extensive reference to the debates at committee and in the House, both in the Senate and in the in the House of Commons, and they determined that it was really for Parliament to determine whether or not uh, there was um, a harm that needed to be dealt with. So they, the, those five, were agreed at least on that point that this was a valid exercise of the federal uh, criminal law power, and uh, upheld uh, upheld the law. Which uh, to, we we you know you. You, you sit in the courtroom and you you watch a court a case being argued and you you go back and forth at least I do and you think okay that's that judge looks like he's on side and she looks like she's against us and you go back and forth and uh, we knew that the court would be divided uh, it was obvious from the questioning that uh, they put to counsel but uh, uh, in the end it was it was five four and uh, on that point while there were disagreements on some other broader issues, uh, on the point uh, about the constitutionality of this bill, uh, they were very clear that uh, Parliament, this was within Parliament's right to do, it was within Parliament's power to do this, and having done it, uh, the court should respect that exercise of the power. 
Right. So bringing to an end a, a truly re- remarkable journey for for this legislation. Uh, as you think, as you look ahead, now that you've you've, you've seen this start with an idea, chat, chat, chatting about uh, a concern, uh, someone in your office, and it grows to become, uh, as you mentioned, really a national movement and faces all these barriers along the way. Thoughts on on what comes next? Uh, for genetic privacy? Is is this really the end of the line? We have the protection that's needed? Or do you see other issues that ought to be addressed well, and thought about? I think that, uh, I think the answer is yes to both those. Uh, we we obviously now will want to talk to provincial attorneys general, provincial governments, and we've begun those conversations to see whether what they need to do to, uh, or want to do to bring their legislation in, in line with uh, labor, their labor codes and their uh, human rights legislation in line with uh, the federal act, and in many cases, it's simply amending the provincial human rights act to uh, prohibit discrimination on the basis of genetic uh, characteristics. And I think there's a willingness uh, in the part of at least some provinces to do that, and uh, so that we'll be we'll be working with them. There, it, it as I said, where this bill is restricted to contracts to provisions of, for services uh, and uh, and goods and services. There are all kinds of broader applications of genetic testing. We've seen, you know, in the criminal justice field, now that they're using decades old DNA to track down and apprehend and convict um, criminals. Um, so there, 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 just as the genetic testing expands, there will be more and more um, instances where we'll have to see whether our our legislation is adequate, whether it needs to be amended and and altered in some way to offer uh, offer protection. Um, it is I mentioned the number of seventy six thousand tests, and that is in relation to a very small number of the. Um, uh, a very small portion of our of our genome, and as we begin to explore that universe more and more, there will be a an explosion of genetic testing. And genetic testing is, I'm told, uh, by by clinicians and researchers, it is. We, there's a lot of talk about precision medicine or personalized medicine, where you're dealing with the actual patient and not the average patient. And so, genetic testing is very much the key to um, to the future of, of, of medical care. And when you, you, you see, uh, I don't remember the numbers precisely, but when drugs are prescribed, then as an example, uh, the drugs that research has shown will treat the average patient may not treat the actual patient. And so with genetic testing, we're able to determine the efficacy of, or the danger of the administration of a particular drug. I was talking to somebody the other day who has been diagnosed with breast cancer. And uh, there is a, you know, you, you can, there's a sort of, a, a, they, they would do chemotherapy, they would do radiotherapy and then surgery. Uh, and in, in many cases, they would have to do those in a certain order. Well, with genetic testing, they're able to tell with greater precision what will work most effectively, most efficiently, most likely for that particular patient. So in this case, they were able to to skip over the chemotherapy and the radiotherapy and go directly to the surgery, 
Whereas in the old days or before that, without the genetic test, they might have to go through the other steps before they got to the ultimate surgery and you know, further spread might take place. So it, it enables med medical science to be much more precise in its dealing with individuals. And uh, so I think it's, uh, I'm told uh, by, by people who are at the coalface in this, in this field that uh, this really is the future of, of medicine. And now to have the, to be assured that this information is within your control and you control its use, um, that's, I think, a great comfort. And I, I've been told that, you know, more and more people are now accessing available genetic testing. Uh, because they no longer have the fear that it will be used against them. And so that's that that can't be anything but good. It highlights how the science is, continues to advance and, and will continue to have a, an increasing impact in this area. And the, we need legislative frameworks that, that are up to the challenge of addressing both the opportunities, but also some of the concerns. And it's clear that, that your work for many years now have, has paid off in a really important way. This was another example where science was well ahead of the law and we were playing catch up and uh, now we've caught up and I think Canada is a world leader in this in this field and um, hopefully we'll find that other jurisdictions around the world I know other jurisdictions I've been talking to folks in Australia who are looking at this uh, this issue and deciding uh, what they can and should do to uh, to protect Australia so hopefully this this what we've done here can be can be helpful elsewhere Senator Cowan, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. It's a pleasure. Thank you for your interest in it. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.